welcome to the Project Tempest podcast, where we have conversations about creative journeys. Today, we're very lucky to be with Sarah Beaulieu, a French writer, narrative designer, script doctor, who was recently announced as working on Assassin's Creed Valhalla at Ubisoft. Welcome, Sarah. I think I just massacred your last name, but it was, a, it was an honest <laughs> attempt. <You> didn't. <laughs> no, it was great. It was really great. <laughs> Thank you very much for joining us. Um, Thank you for having me. I'm really glad to be speaking with you right you. now. And, and <laughs> as usual, these are just really um, long, interesting, rambling conversations about creativity. I'm, I'm really looking forward to this. One of the first things I'd like to cover, just um, the way we usually start, is what have you been enjoying recently in terms of narrative experiences or things that have inspired you? Yeah, um, I think I gave you two answers to prepare the, yes. the talk. Uh, yeah, and I'm not sure which one I have to choose. So both. I'm gonna go with the first one. Nice. <laughs> both. Okay. Uh, I don't know if you heard of this game called The Beginner's Guide. Um, it's from the guys, at least one of the guys from um, Cross Cross Cross, which is a the studio of, uh, which made um, the Stanley Parable. And uh, The Beginner's Guide is a less um, is is a yeah a, a smaller project I would say, but uh. uh really much and I enjoyed it a lot it's a lot about you know how games are made and uh, it's kind of um, I'm gonna pitch it to you it's gonna be did you play it or not I, I've seen it I, I've I've watched playthroughs okay. but I haven't seen it myself so I I would love to hear okay. the pitch did, did you see it from the beginning to the yes. end or just yeah. the trailer okay yeah. oh okay so um, I played it like a few months ago, once again, but uh, I loved it. So that's the story of uh, Koda, I think his name is, uh, which is a game developer. Uh, we don't know a lot about him, so uh, we're just going to see some of his games. And we have a voiceover from another, we don't know who it is at the beginning, I think, uh, someone who is going to tell you, the player, um, what Koda is doing with his games and what his obsessions are, you know. So you're just wandering through a few games uh, with different universes, but there are some obsessions like lights that you can see everywhere uh, from Koda, and you don't know anything about this man's life or why he makes those weird games, but you just want to know more about him and the voiceover is here to guide you and you just play the games. And there's no gameplay per se, but uh, just uh, you know, a wonderful journey from you know one game to another, one universe to another, and one obsession to another. And uh, yeah, I, I I enjoy you know those kind of um, I would say games about dreams or just how you can see life through games um, with no not much gameplay but just something to think about and uh, really meta, you know, yes. like the Stanley Parable. Yeah, uh, games who which talk about games, you know, nice. and why we play games. Yeah. I. So, what did you think about it? If you saw the walkthrough. So again, without playing it, which is probably a different experience, but um, I agree with the idea of a lot of those small miniature games in in the beginner's guide. They they feel like strange set pieces or kind of small sketches from a book. Like if you, if you're any type of creative, you probably have a book somewhere that you just sort of jot your ideas down, and it's almost like yeah. this journey through the mind of someone who's evolving as a creator, as a game designer. And I was really fascinated by 
the voiceover, which in, in my understanding is the, the actual person who made the game is yeah. pretending to be himself. He's going on stage <laughs> and playing himself and he has this very complex relationship with Coda, who is the game designer whose yeah. worlds we're exploring. And at various points, it, it, it starts off quite whimsical and then it goes into some very disturbing and strange and obsessive territory, as you said. And yeah. I found it remarkable that, as you say, the gameplay mechanics are, are not complex, intentionally so. It's, it's almost a walking simulator, but it's a very David Lynch walking simulator yeah. through this real descent into obsession and almost madness. And, I, yeah. and the person that I was watching playing it on the video, they, they got really affected. They were really drawn in. Was that yeah. your experience? Uh, affected in a way you mean like sad or w um, what kind of a... Powerfully moved. Emotion. Moved oh, powerfully, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, because, you know, I'm very easily moved, so that's not a <laughs> not a good cursor. But, um, yeah, I'm deeply moved by, you know, these kind of experiences where you feel like you're the creator. You're not the viewer. You're just someone experiencing something that you already know. You know I feel like I don't, I'm not a game developer per se, once again, but uh, um, I love to create things. And, the, you know, the process of creation is um, sometimes really awful yes. <laughs> you know, and difficult and yeah and uh and deeply personal of course so what the creator feels in the game is kind of what i feel sometimes when i'm creating something that i don't even understand and uh, i'm trying to do you know my own <laughs> therapy <laughs> in some way when i'm creating things but uh, it's not always successful so i yeah relate to these kind of uh, characters and um well, you don't know and you don't see any any one of these characters, you know, Koda or the voiceover or the same person. Uh, you don't see them at any point. You don't, you don't see anyone in the game. You don't have any uh, figure to relate to, any faces. Uh, it's just, you know, cubes and objects and, you know, and in a way it just makes sense, you know. Um, it's not like you relate to the, the objects like they are... Um, like there are people, you know, there mm. is not that kind of relationship like in a Pixar movie, if you know what I mean. I don't know how you say that in English, anthropomorphism. Yep. Is it right in English? Yep. Yeah. Um, so you don't have this kind of things to relate to. You just have objects and a voice. And I think that's brilliant. Uh, Stanley Parable works the same, actually. Don't, don't, any, don't have any people or um, things to relate to as a human except the voice. You know, of the. Did you play the standard parable? Yes, of course. Parable, yeah. yeah. So you like that? Yeah, I I enjoy all those games, and and um, to me, very much following on what you're saying, one of the most interesting things to me is that you're almost always experiencing the trail or the echoes or the traces mm. of events and memories. It's so hard, especially in games, to really create believable people or characters. Um, even just on a technical level, especially obviously if you're showing faces, facial animation, all these things. And to just take all that away in some of these walking simulators and just leave you with the echoes of things or just voices, which are much easier to do. And that's so evocative. Yeah. Some, something like um, What Remains of Edith Finch. Yeah. Same sort of yeah. thing, right? We're, <laughs> we're um, probably more involved in terms of gameplay, but really, you never really meet any of these people. 
you mm. just hear and feel the echoes of them and experience the spaces that they lived in. And yeah. I, I've always really enjoyed that. It's it's not <clears throat> sorry, it's not trying to make a movie of someone's life. It's 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 much more as we do with all creators. All you ever really experience is the secondhand echoes of where they've been and what they've done. But it's so interesting to then um, really re-experience that. There's a bit in the beginner's guide where we're sort of at the point in the creative journey where the original designer has decided that all of their work is garbage and pointless and yeah. the game gives you a gun and what you are doing with the gun is you're just obliterating space you are obliterating everything you are destroying yeah. the, the the work that has been done and i i don't know about you but anyone who goes through those creative journeys it's a very familiar feeling at some yeah. point, you just like, this is Krivos wants to destroy this. And it's so yeah. powerful. Yeah. I don't like to just destroy ideas, you know. <laughs> I, I think I I used to do that. Yes. You know, just yeah. put the, the bad ideas in a trash, you know. like a, But, um, yeah, it doesn't work for me anymore because I always go back to old ideas, mm. you know. And I'm just, you know... Um, nervous about the fact that I can erase all of these and just you know make like they never existed it's kind of painful so I, I prefer you know I have my own ID box where I put some things old and new and um, I always say to myself I will go back to them one day and probably I will never go back to them but uh, it's just here and it's you know comforting to know that they are their little places you know <laughs> and it's very nice to know that they're there right even if we don't ever open yeah. the box yes but yeah but when you're grappling with something with with an idea or a project and i think almost al almost all projects that i've been through at least they go through a point where it all feels like it's broken and there is that impulse yeah. there is that sort of thing of well we could just trash it and and you yeah. and you have to go through that but it's very painful I, I i thought the beginner's guide really evoked the the stranger corners of those journeys really beautifully yeah yeah it? Yeah, and it's kind of sad. That's why you said uh, someone was moved, and yeah, it's moving because it's yeah, kind of pay painful as a, as a uh, emotion. Yeah, I think I think especially, I'd argue it's only really been quite recently, maybe the last fifteen years, that more games have been okay with going to those type of strange spaces. Um, yeah. For for a very long time, obviously early on, the real the real purpose of games was just to essentially entertain and stimulate you on those classic loops, and there's not yeah. really room in those loops for the type of creative agony that we might experience <laughs> sometimes. And and I I I really enjoy um, anyone that's pushing the vocabulary. And pushing the mm. possibilities um, so it was and again I, I still haven't actually played the beginner's guide but even watching it that was that was quite the experience so that it, it's a wonderful recommendation thank yeah. you oh you're welcome <laughs> did you have one I think you you had the one I saw something yeah sure and and and, and you mentioned a second game as well that I'd, I'd like to come back to in a second but um yeah so my um, just recently, one experience which which is very different from yours that I've been enjoying, especially because obviously um, we've had lockdowns going on, of course, around the world. And in New Zealand, we, we had one major lockdown and then now, broadly speaking, things are okay. But 
we can't leave the country. So we're, we're, we're sort of stuck down here at the bottom of the South Pacific. And <laughs> there's a guy in Japan and he calls himself Rambalak. And all he's doing is he is walking the streets, especially in places like Tokyo, places like Shinjuku or Harajuku. He's walking the streets with a 4K camera and really good sound recording equipment. And he's just giving you half an hour to two hours at a time of just really strolling the streets of Tokyo. Mm. And I was, I was in Tokyo two years ago. I loved it. I, I absolutely fell in love with it. And this guy, Rambalak, on, on his ASMR journeys, um, um, he's, he's not trying to commentate. He's not trying to impose himself. He's literally just trying to almost put you in his shoes and just, and just walk the streets like a flaneur. Yeah. And I would, you know, if you told me five years ago that this category of videos on YouTube would exist, I would have thought well, that that's odd, but I guess it does. And it's absolutely hypnotizing for me. It's so relaxing just to walk the streets and enjoy the sights and the sounds and absorb it all. And that's all I want. I don't, I don't want a narrative. I don't want a guide. I don't want commentary. I don't want anything to happen. Nothing happens in these videos. He just, he just walks the streets and goes <laughs> where he wants. Um, and it's, I've found it absolutely absorbing. And especially over the past year, being stuck in a good way in New Zealand. I'm, I'm not going to Tokyo anytime soon. And just that thought of really um, taking all of the extra stuff out of an experience and, and just leaving this, this, this pure flow of light and sensation and noise and other people, I, I've, I've loved it. I, I highly recommend Rambalak on YouTube to anyone who just wants to wander around these cities vicariously for a while. It's been good fun. Is the camera just, you know, um, his point of view or is it a camera that is, um, you know, showing him walking or? No, it's... Do you see him? When no, okay. um, you occasionally see his shadow and you realize that he's very oh. polite and when he walks past people, especially young women, he actually averts the camera because he's being polite okay. and not trying to put people on camera. Sorry, but it's very much, he's, he's holding it, I think, at more or less sort of eye or shoulder level so he's wandering around okay and there's something about the rhythm of his footsteps he's really good at walking around with a camera like it's it's hard <laughs> to describe it's the right speed That's a skill. yeah yeah he's, he's really worked at this yeah so so you never see him it's just this kind of um really disturbingly like a first person game like a walking simulator really yeah, yeah it's, it's very well done great i'm gonna check that has he just done uh, Tokyo or no. other cities? He's he, just Tokyo. He he's done a lot of um, parts of Tokyo and parts of Japan, and sometimes he'll go out into okay. the woods and things. And then there's a few other ones. I think he was in Canada and he was in the U.S. So there's various various other ones. And of course, once you start going down those rabbit holes, there's a, there's a whole thing about those videos. But his are are really exceptionally good, and a lot of other people. Okay. They, they try and impose themselves. They really want to be your tourist guide to somewhere like mm. Vancouver. And, and, and I don't want that. I, I, I just want to yeah. walk. Yeah, it's a wonderful thing. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take that. It sounds, sounds peaceful. And yeah, we need that. Absolutely. Now, <laughs> the other thing that you were talking about, which, which I also saw, um, what, was this thing, There Is No Game, which yeah. actually felt very theatrical to me. So I, I wanted to follow up on this. <laughs> Tell me about There Is No Game. 
Um, actually, it's a guy from my town who made it, uh, Pascal Camisotto, uh, from a studio called uh, Draw Me a Pixel. And it's a very, uh, I think that's six months ago, uh, yeah. Uh, it's a game he pretty much did by himself. So um, kind of impressive, you know, one guy for all the jobs that you can imagine in a, in a studio uh, like Ubisoft with two, like maybe 200 people. He just do, does it by himself, you know, just one guy. So he did the voiceover. I don't know. Uh, did you see the trailer or just the yeah, walkthrough? Actually, yeah, or the whole game. The, trailer? Played it. the whole game. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So it's great to play, actually, if you have the occasion. It's it's a good game to play because just to see, it's, you know, you, you have to think, like he says, uh, out of the box when you play it. So um, it's a game to play, yeah, more than to watch, not like the uh, beginner's guide. But uh, yeah, it's a game about uh, games, once again. I love those. Um, so you enter a game and actually there is no game. That's the title. So when you enter the game, you have to play, but the game doesn't want you to play. So you have to make it <laughs> play. So it's, um, you know, a whole game about how you must think out of the box to uh, evolve in the game. Um, it's uh, very meta, so you have different game universes. For game lovers, it's pretty great. You have RPGs, um, free-to-play and stuff like that, you know, all these kind of games, um, point-and-clicks stuff like that also um, and you go from one universe to another just to play <laughs> that's the whole game you have to play but the game doesn't want you to so that's just the you know the loop and um, it's a simple loop and it's very simple mechanics but uh, in simple it's simple mechanics that you know as a player because you've been playing for a long time um, and uh, you know how to you must think to achieve the goal uh, but it's always something else and something just uh, closer, but not what you expected, you know. So you just have to think a different way. And um, yeah, I love the game. I, I thought it was very funny. Um, I love the voices, the voiceover. Actually, he does the main voice himself. So once again, he does things really by himself. That's great. And the game had a huge... Um, Huge publicity. Um, I think um, a lot of people from The Last of Us actually said they loved the game. So <laughs> that's, that's a great uh, publicity for the game. And um, yeah, for a one-man game, I would say, pretty much. It's, yeah, pretty amazing. I don't know what you thought of it. I don't know how it feels to just see it and not play it. I, I don't know. I, I really enjoyed it, partly because the the core presentation obviously is there, there's this voice who's kind of cranky and very funny and yeah you enter this game and he's literally saying there's no game here go away i don't want you to play there's nothing here nothing here at all it's it's a very funny comedy routine and what i was reminded of and this is why i, I talked about the theatrical thing he reminded me of a very good street performer or an mm -hmm. improvisation performer where it really feels like he keeps on yes anding you. He takes what you do and then says something funny and yanks you over to some other bit of his game. And he says, oh, you want to make a tree? Well, here's a tree, damn it. And now we're not playing anymore. It's, it's <laughs> very funny. And more than almost any other game of that type that I've played, I really felt like there was a, a, a 
person interacting with me and responding mm. and doing that thing that really good improvisation in theater does where really whatever comes along we're going to take it and add to it and keep making it funny and enjoyable and that that part was really well done i thought yeah yeah you're right i didn't know what you were what you meant by uh, theatrical but i get it um it's yeah the feeling that you really mean something at the moment in the game yes. that you really have an impact and i think that's yeah. that that loop i mean um i when we used to do theater and film um i i did more film less theater but the difference always struck me that in film once once the film was assembled there's actually really no audience loop the audience and the film don't really affect each other while you're watching them whereas obviously with theater with any type of theatrical performance there is an energy loop going back and forth between the performers mm. and the people in the audience and sometimes with games it feels to me at least like you are playing with a machine which is obviously what you're doing but that game really felt like we were in a theater and someone's taking yeah. my energy and responding and evolving and that was that was really cool i i really enjoyed that yeah i'm glad you enjoyed it excellent recommendation <laughs> so you thank have you the chance to, <laughs> to if you have the chance to play it yeah try it i think you'll love it and once once more what do you enjoy about these types of games because these are these are both quite meta games they they're both games yeah. about games what what really gets you going about these type of things um i love anything meta actually <laughs> i love anything about anything you know like games about games movies about movies you know going i don't know how you say that in english um going through the fourth wall yes i don't know how you yeah, say fourth that wall. is it going through yeah yeah so yeah i love this kind of you know of um um self-reflection i don't know you know um um always trying to uh question what is a movie what is a game what is a book and um i love i love those kind of games actually i don't i'm a very i would say a, i'm a huge rpg player that's my main type of game rpg you know like role-playing yep. games like uh i don't know i always have just old examples um one of my favorite ones is some something that nobody knows about called okenum it's a game from the 90s or maybe early i don't know late 90s i would say and it's a game in steampunk universe Well, you just have to play an ogre or a dwarf or, you know, anything classic. <laughs> But I love it. And uh, I love these kind of old games, you know, where you just have to play a character in a fantasy universe. Um, but I like modern games, you know, like you said earlier, uh, games that are um, intelligent, clever, clever games about why you play games and also why you make games. Um, you know, I still have uh, this kind of weird feeling when I'm, when I say to people that I um, work into games, video games. Um, I sometimes feel like, you know, um, how, how to put it, um, some kind of, uh, huh. why, why are you writing games since you've been writing for a much more greater media, which is movie? <laughs> Or, you know, just literature. Literature is a noble uh, way to tell story. 
And uh, yeah, I, I agree with that. But uh, I don't think games are not a noble way to tell stories. I think they're just ways to tell stories and not, you know, <laughs> some kind of a scale with scale. Yes. And, you know. Um, but yeah, I have this kind of feeling that people still think that games are much more um, interesting than movies or, or literature because they're just, you know, technologies and I don't know how to put that exactly but uh yeah I have this feeling and uh, I you know I kind of like this kind of games because they make people feel like there is something in games that we don't we don't understand as much as in movies and literature yeah. because we are not as used as um, games as we are uh, of literature on movies um, but yeah, we're going to that, and I love you know young creators like Cross 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 and uh, people like that who just try to make us uh, feel things through games, or you know like Journey, to to put a an easy example, <laughs> but a uh, Journey or you know these kind of little games that are just about emotions, and that's all. It's it's a really interesting area, and it's it's also one of my um one of my hobby horses, one of, one of my passions. Um, so I, I suspect that we come from quite different cultural environments. Um, obviously you're in France, I'm in New Zealand and <laughs> in New Zealand, you, you have that thing where, um, the exact same invisible hierarchy where, um, literature and film, are these worthy things. And it's, it's just a wonderful thing to devote your life to those. <laughs> and games, well, well, why, why are you spending time on such silly things? Yeah. And one of the biggest things in New Zealand is that um, there is a, there's a pretty hard split, I would say, in New Zealand between the commercial and the essentially government-funded. Um, like obviously New Zealand is well known for having produced the Lord of the Rings films and companies like Weta Workshop, which do a lot of special effects yeah. worldwide. And then there is a, there's a sort of second shadow industry in film, which is the homegrown films, wonderful local films, all of these things, all of which one way or another have quite a lot of government funding and the same pattern exists in literature. And for, at least the last 25 years, um, the, the government has strongly invested in those areas and, and tried to keep them going and expand them. Now, I know a, a large number of the people who have founded successful New Zealand game companies. And until very recently, every single one of them almost never got a dollar from the government they they were absolutely you know just laughed out of the room and the weird thing is there's this line and i don't know if if you find it with the where you are as well and part of it's an age line and part of it's a sort of social thing where above a certain age it seems and above a certain level of experience there's this natural thought that as you say there's just this hierarchy Oh, film, wonderful. Literature, wonderful. <laughs> Games, I don't even know that. But on the other side of that line, which to me is almost every young person that I've ever met, it's almost the reverse because 
they grow up playing games. Games are just natural. Games are just the thing that's all around you. And almost all of the internet, in a, in a way, is kind of just like a big game. And mm. those other things are almost like these old-fashioned, they're almost like sculpture or epic poetry. They're, they're old forms that, yeah, great, wonderful, but kind of irrelevant. And yeah. the, the biggest thing over the past 10 years, especially in New Zealand for me, is New Zealand went from a place where... Um, we didn't really make games here. It wasn't a thing that you thought of when you were growing up. If you wanted to make games, you would probably have to go overseas. To almost every bright young person that I know wants to either start a business or make games or both. So to me at least, um, a lot of that social confusion and the older, um, frankly, snobbery, really, I mean, really, if we're calling it something. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's just aging out because games are eating the world. And you have this really weird moment sometimes when people suddenly realize how big the games industry is and how many people, especially people under about 35, how many people play games. And there's this look on their face and suddenly like, I thought these were just little toys. It's like no, no. This is this is gigantic. This is this is the thing yeah. that is that is eating all of your your older forms. And then I think in amongst that, the only thing left to do, as you say, is then to just keep expanding the actual emotional range of what games can do. If yeah. if we're about give or take, if we're about forty something years into the commercial games industry. So film, 40 years into the commercial film yeah. industry, about 1930, most, mm. most films are slapstick. Most films have a man with a ladder and a man with a paint bucket and funny stuff, and that's what films are. Yeah, yeah. true. And, and I think that, that exact thing that happens with film, where all of a sudden the, the whole emotional range explodes over the course of about 20 years, and film goes from this despised juvenile joke of a medium culturally. It was never taken seriously mm. before that to it becomes film. And yeah. I wonder if games are right on the cusp of doing this. I mean, what do you think? Um, I think this is a concept from Lev Medovich, his name is, uh, called remediation. Uh, it's the concept that, you know, <laughs> I think you know it, but, uh, you know, you you're not um, just experiencing movie when you start cinema starts and uh, you just take people just took from theater and then video games arrived and they took from theater but also from movies and uh, they have all these um, uh, experiences that were done before them so they just have to take some things from it and just readapt just I mean you know just it's not that simple but uh, they can take it and just uh, try something else with this basic stuff so um yeah um i think you know what you said about people uh, how you say that Sno snobbery yes snobbery yeah, <laughs> yeah those yeah. kind of people yeah <laughs> uh, i kind of experience that with sometimes not all of them uh, just to be clear but some um, comedians, um, French comedians, because, uh, you know, in England, and um, I, 
I told you earlier that I like to work with comedians and uh, English comedians are great because they are used to um, play for different kind of media. So theater, uh, movies, video games, and they just go from Shakespeare to uh, The Witcher. <laughs> they go back to Shakespeare and then go on a movie and stuff like that. TV series, of course, and stuff. Um, there is not the same kind of vibe, I would say, in a French comedian. Uh, they are more, you know, just theater or just movie or maybe movie and theater. But video game is kind of a, an entirely different thing for them sometimes. And uh, I think this is a loss because we have great comedians, obviously, in France. But uh, they just don't have this kind of culture where you just go from one thing to another and it's just as... Uh, fulfilling for them um, as anything else. Um, some of them just don't see in video games something they could um, take, I would say, take advantage, advantage from, but it's not what I'm gonna, uh, it's more like something that could nourish them, sure. you know, you know, you know, yeah, feed them <laughs> in a way, um, just like, you know, in an artistic, artistic way. Not a, I'm not talking about Mooney here, but just artistic way. Um, they don't take it this way. They just think that video games just like, you know, you say snobberish people. <laughs> uh, they just think it's uh, not for them. It's just something silly to do. Yeah. Um, some of them used to, yeah, to think that way. And I hope it's, I think it's going to change. Uh, it's, it's changing actually. But uh, yeah, I, I hope it will really much because it's a loss yeah. <laughs> that we don't have much more uh, French comedians doing video games in a you know voluntary <laughs> way. <laughs> nice. No, it makes a lot of sense. And and I agree. One of the things to me, at least, is is to bring practitioners from as many arts as possible into this this giant blender. Um, yeah. Some of the same thing here, even around theatre. Um, we we do have some wonderful theatre people in New Zealand. Um, some some wonderful theatre writers and partly a generational thing some of them simply do not have a connection with games it's not something they understand mm. they're not necessarily hostile but it's just a foreign mm. universe and some of the skills and experiences and just the, the, the overall range that they could bring into games would be wonderful but there is a, yeah. a, a barrier that's hard to get over still and you're they're they're not necessarily going to go back and like we have spend 10, 20 years just filling ourselves mm. with games to become part of this. Yeah. But, but, yeah. but as, as the world moves on, as everyone under 35 and then everyone under 40 and then everyone under 50 just has games as this thing that they swim in over time, yeah. it will just, it, it, it will just fix itself. Yeah. True. <laughs> um, now, one of the things that I love to talk about, because this always ends up being really fascinating and strange, and people give such wonderful answers, we, we talked for a while about things we've been enjoying recently. And the other thing that I'm really interested in is really formative narrative experiences, things that at whatever age just really sort of changed you. And mm. one of the things that you suggested as we were talking before is the wonderful book, The Portrait of Dorian Gray. And yeah. I would I would love to understand why you chose this and what kind of effect this had on you. 
Um, I think I made a mistake just telling you that I love this book because I love it so much nice. that I'm not sure I can talk about it even in French, you know, so even more in English. So that's the perfect that, try. It's the perfect choice. <laughs> it's it's exactly the sort of thing we want to talk about. Great. So yeah, um, yeah, I, I've I've taken some notes, you know, since I'm not quite sure uh, how to to organize all all of these thoughts, you know. Um, yeah, I've discovered uh, Oscar Wilde, which he, uh, he's my favorite author of all time. Nice. Um, I have a deep connection to, to, to this guy, so, <laughs> so to say. Um, yeah, um, I've discovered it when I was very young, uh, with his, uh, you know, small, um, small novels, short novels, um, like fairy tale stuff, um, tales, I would say. And uh, yeah, I thought he was just a funny guy because I, I've, I had read, you know, just funny things things that he would have written and uh, I discovered the portrait of Dorian Gray I don't know maybe like I was 10 or something like that and um, I just didn't understand anything that was said <laughs> it's just so much about life and love and things that you don't know at 10 you know at 10 it's not possible um, but as as I grew up I read it I don't know thousands of times I have like I don't know I didn't account so like 15 different editions, you know, cool. like old ones, new ones in English and in French. So, um, this uh, book for me is a lot about, I would say, um, fascination, you know, like um, the things you don't understand about others that you deeply want to experience. So, um, the book to me is a lot about love but love in a you know very various uh, in very various forms you know like the love you have obviously for yourself because Dorian Gray is all about himself but <laughs> for yourself but also for others um, you know like all the love between um, the painter and uh, the model and all the love between uh, Sibyl also and Dorian um, and what it can do to someone like um, how love and death are truly connected in any way. And you know, I, at some point I used to go in libraries and ask the librarian if um, there were some books about fascination other than this one. And I, I don't know how much times I did that, but uh, I never had a correct answer. Yeah. Librarians would say, I don't know, fascination, I don't know, maybe this one. It was not, you know, even close <laughs> to what I was looking for. Um, but, the, you know, this. I don't know if you know a little about Oscar Wilde's life. And, uh, yeah, so, um, you know, the things he wrote when he, he was in prison, mm -hmm. you know, short before he died, um, he wrote to his uh, lover, Alfred uh, Douglas, and uh, he made a long letter uh, Alfred Douglas never answered and he wrote this letter um, De Profondis and he told him how much um, he had love and anger towards him and the things they had uh, experienced together and uh, it's obviously very sad but also it's to me it's like anything you anything you want to know about life is in this book and nice. in Oscar Wilde's life to me and in De Profundis also um, because it's a lot about what you give to someone that you can't have in mm -hmm. return, um, what you 
receive from people that you can't give in return and this kind of you know injustice <laughs> between people and uh, complex relationships and uh, I think that Oscar Wilde really got all of these and when you read anything that he wrote you just have a range on what life is actually to me and um, his life is also <laughs> some kind of a uh, difficult but uh, really accurate <laughs> uh, model of what life can be so cruel and you know um, unfair and uh, complex and stuff yeah so I, I love this guy and everything he did you know I don't know how much I could put into that I, I just wrote it's very cruel talking about the, the book it's very cruel but very sharp and clever mm -hmm. so and I <laughs> I just, uh, you know, took a little sentence, which is, um, you know, the moment when I'm going to spoil, but uh, if someone didn't read the book, just read the book and then you can come back and listen. Um, but this moment, you know, when uh, Dorian um, doesn't love Sibyl anymore, the actress, because she uh, fell in love with him so deeply that she can't act anymore. And she's just... A bad actress and what he loved about her was his uh, her acting skills you know the way she acted uh, on the stage so he goes to see her and he just says that he doesn't want to be with her anymore they were supposed to be married um, and he says uh, the Oscar Wilde the narrator says uh, she cries and she just begs him and that's kind of you know too much for him for Dorian and Oscar Wilde says there is always something ridiculous about the emotions of people whom one has ceased to love and I thought <laughs> it was perfect and it's you know yeah it's life <laughs> nice. and uh, yeah you know I read the book and I always say to myself I always say to myself well it's life and life how it is yeah that, that is a wonderful <laughs> articulation of why that book is so special thank you I, I agree, especially Oscar Wilde, he, he lived a life. He was, he, was, he was not stuck away in his bedroom. Um, yeah. yeah. What, was it, what was it like from the age of 10 or so when you discovered this book, even through to now, as you keep returning to it? And I, I absolutely agree. Um, I, I, I assume that at the age of 10, there's so much in that book that would just kind of not be something that you could necessarily connect with. But then as, yeah. as we grow and evolve, it becomes more and more true. What's it been like having this journey with this book over your life? Oh, it's a difficult question. I'm sorry to <laughs> stump you. <laughs> I would say at 10, I was just kind of overwhelmed sure. by, by what I was reading, you know. Did you and enjoy it um, at 10? Did you, did you even like, even, oh. really even just the wordplay because he's so witty and, and, and so elegant. Did you enjoy aspects of the yeah. book? Yeah. I think it was too difficult for me to uh, really read correctly. Sure. You know, at ten, you know, it was not a book, and it, it's still not a book for ten years old. I think it's too much, you know, little sentences that just work, you know, on their side, <laughs> and not action or uh, people interacting with each other. It's a lot of talk, you know. People just talk. <laughs> they talk and they talk. Um, <laughs> so when you're 10, that's not what you're looking for <laughs> most of the time. But um, um, I'm a chatty person, um, actually. <laughs> uh, 
And uh, yeah, what I loved about this book is, uh, and how I evolved with it, I think, is that I um, really soon I related to it in some ways, you know, like um, the way the characters uh, experience love and death and uh, fear and uh, fascination once again and obsession also. It's very strong in this book and uh, how they just get lost in their life. And you said, Oscar Wilde, he had a life, yeah. <laughs> so he had a life, he experienced love at a deeply level, deep level, and um, drugs and alcohol and all of this stuff. And um, he didn't, I think he didn't regret that at the end. I hope so for him, <laughs> but, uh, and he had such a, you know, lonely death yeah. uh, in Paris, so, I kind of feel what he felt uh, when reading this book, and you know I'm not Oscar Wilde in any way, but uh, but I, yeah I feel for that guy since I know what it is and I nice. understand what he felt, and I think he put everything in that book, and I think that this is his only uh, long novel, um, so I think it's not um, how uh, it's not a. Um, it's not by chance, it's his only book because that's what he had to say at this point mm -hmm. and, you know, it just stands for itself, you know. Nice, yeah. <laughs> I, I, no, no, I agree. And I I was always fascinated with the relationship with Lord Alfred Douglas, which in, in yeah. the end completely undid him. And my understanding of it, and, and obviously I wasn't there, but it always struck me the sense of that Oscar Wilde was, was deeply perceptive and he knows that he is... Um, essentially hostage to someone that is cruel and is not going to love him back in the way that he wants. As you were oh, saying yeah. before, he, he, he knows exactly what he's getting into, really. And he takes the plunge anyway. And, and, it's, and, and, and it's such a yeah. human thing to do. I, I always found with, with the shorter stuff, um, especially the plays, when you first encounter the plays, they're so witty. They're so funny. Literally mm. every line is, is funny. Yeah. And what I what I saw later on in that is it's a very witty person papering over immense feeling and pain and sadness and struggle. All of those plays yeah. to me, they on on the surface they're these very witty comedies of manners and, and and below that, once you peel that back, there's just this vast thing there. And I agree, like yeah. like the idea that that novel is the thing that he's like, right, I'm really just going to pour everything into this. I'm not even really going to paper it over. It's all just going to be here. And I agree. I mean, I don't know that too many people would have more than one of those novels in them. What do you do after Dorian Gray? You don't then go and write the sequel. And go, <laughs> well, I have more pain to share sort of things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, of course, I'm glad he didn't do the sequel. <laughs> that would have been great. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's a it's a really cool choice. Thank you. It's 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 wonderful to think because for me at least, a lot of the things that I read when I was younger, I probably just outgrew. There are so many things that they are they're great for one period of your life, and then you if you arrive at them too early or too late, it just doesn't work. And I think it's wonderful to have this ongoing relationship with something creative that keeps on building and and doing what it's done for you. That's wonderful. You know, I've read your, um, I don't know how to say it, pr presentation of uh, your project, Project Tempest. Oh, sure. And uh, I read the, yeah. And um, 
what I thought about, and you, maybe it's not what you what you had in mind, but I thought about you know uh, Stephen King's universe and you know madness, craziness, um, loneliness, also uh, you know those uh, kind of weird little towns where some things happen and you don't know why. And uh, I grew up with Stephen King also. That's not a different style from <laughs> that's just a different style from uh, Oscar Wilde. But uh, I loved him very much when I was younger. I still do, and it's kind of a long-term relationship also with uh, Stephen King. So I loved your presentation, oh, cheers. Thank to you. be honest. <laughs> no, I, it's really interesting that you bring up Stephen King. One of the things, I, I, mean, I mean, I don't know about you, for, for literally my entire life, um, Stephen King has always been this, this thing that's around. I mean, when I, was, oh, yeah. when I was six, I remember people being scared by his books and, and, yeah. and all that sort of thing. And it's, I, I've, I've always envied this idea and been fascinated by it that in terms of geography, there is this, this area up in the Northeast United States. I mean, you literally call it Stephen King country, right? He's just made it his own. <laughs> yeah. And this is one of the things, um, this, this is part of my, my kind of political views around um, things like New Zealand literature. Um, I go, okay, so Stephen King has spent... 50 years building king country and it's a geography it's emotions it's stories it's people he just pours himself into it and i i ask myself in, in a very stupid and arrogant way i go well i can't do that for north america but i'd love to do it for right here and <laughs> and you think of like like in whatever 1973 or so when stephen king wasn't yet published um he would be writing about Maine, the state. And at that time, I'm pretty sure that Maine was not a place that had stories of that type. You know what I mean? Like, like people didn't think oh. of Stephen King country. It didn't exist. So at some point oh. he was, he was arrogant enough and persistent enough to go out and create it over time. Yeah. And this is something that fascinates me. I, I would like in my creative journey to build my own territory of some kind. And it would be different from Oscar Wilde. Oscar Wilde, I think, is is much more a very distinctive character and emotional territory. You you know when you're going into Oscar Wilde land, just as you know when you're going into Stephen King country. And one of the core questions I ask myself now, for, for me, most of my um, overall work over the past 15 years has been essentially behind the scenes helping other people realize their visions and create their things. And this is great fun and it's been a wonderful thing to do and you learn a lot. But at some point, I want my Stephen King country. And it's, <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, again, that thing that you were saying that you admire with Oscar Wilde, where if, if you just, in the end, if you pour enough of yourself and humanity into something, it will probably reflect into other people and they will connect with it. And I think mm. when I read Stephen King, especially his earlier stuff, with a kind of older critical eye. On the writing side, I'd, I want to edit him. I want to chop about half out of most of the books. There's lots of stuff where I go, well, I'll take that out, take that out, all sort of thing. But <laughs> there's that thing where for just a huge number of people, um, for a very long time, there's something in King's stories that just gets them. Yeah. And it's so primal and it's not about line by line writing style 
it's not about any of that stuff it's just there's something that grabbed just as oscar wilde even at the age of 10 something reflected in there and you thought this somehow reflects on me and 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 that to me is is fascinating and valuable um and very much part of my wild ambitions and arrogance about what i want to do personally yeah, I don't think it's arrogant. I think it's clever. <laughs> I think it's a very fine line there, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> I... um, yeah, uh, I think, you know, what you say about uh, Stephen King's world, I didn't, I, I saw that, I don't know, uh, last week, I think, a map of uh, Stephen King's universe, you know, uh, but it's a narrative map. Yes. So you have different characters, you know, showing up in other novels and stuff. It's great. It's it's brilliant, actually. <laughs> and when you just spot these kind of little details in one novel or another, it's just really w rewarding, also for us as a uh, as readers. Absolutely. Um, yeah. What I love actually about Stephen King is just the way he pictures people. Yes. You know, there. I don't know if you. Um, how is this book called in English? On writing. Just on yes, writing. Yeah. I think. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. It's not fiction. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if you remember the. Um, the pages where he talks about his accident, his uh, big accident with a, a car and a drunk guy yeah. who just uh, yeah ran into him and stuff, and um, it's just the description that he gives uh, of this guy in the in the truck. I think it's a little truck. I can't remember, but uh, yeah, the description he gives, and you see the man, you know, yes. just in front of you. And it's kind of creepy because it's just a normal guy you know he met the guy and he i think they had a trial and stuff just to yeah set things up but uh he almost died this day and uh in 99 i think 99 and uh, i just love the way he picks little things on people you know the way they just they sneeze or the way they uh look at other people the way they eat or stuff and uh, just describe them in a very clever way in very precise way it's a, just small meaningful details and i love that about him i i very much i i absolutely agree and, and i think it is the absolutely the the main connection between someone like oscar wilde and stephen king that that the people and the characters are at the core of it right um there there have been yeah. many many great horror writers who have come up with interesting monsters and interesting settings and things but Stephen King will take a character and he'll stay with them for 150 pages and you'll know everything about this person and you'll feel them and then he'll just murder them. And, and that's so impressive. Um, I, I remember when I, when I first read Pet Cemetery, and it was one of those things, everybody at school had kind of snuck a copy and you really weren't supposed to read it because this was the scariest book ever and, and you're, everyone is far too young for it. And so I, I, I knew this going in, but the first, the first 200 pages of Pet Cemetery, almost nothing scary happens. You're just learning about this man and these people and this place that he lives, and you're just feeling what it's like to wake up and be him every day. And the whole time, it's like there's this cloud on the horizon where you know it's going to get scary at some point. But, you know, when you're doing movies, they would absolutely tell you that in the very first scene something scary should happen and that's how people will know it's a horror movie that would that would absolutely be the commercial advice and Stephen King's like I'm going to write a deep character driven novel until I'm not 
but we're going to be along for the ride. And I always thought that was really, really smart. And I think his 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 plots as such are are um, all over the place. And and if you were being that kind of creative writing tutor, you would you would just get mad at so much stuff. But all he's really doing at the very early on is going, here's a person. Let's go for a journey together. Let's let's just walk around together and be human together. And I always thought that's incredibly smart. Yeah. So I think that's why you talk about walk. But I think my favorite book from book from Stephen King is The Long Walk. Actually. Yes, right. Uh, yeah. And in French, the title is much more interesting actually it's um i would say just that in uh it's marche ou crève which means walk or die but uh. die in a very argotic way it's uh, you know crève is really argotic yeah so really violent as sure. a word yeah. it's not like just die um so i like the french title better for i agree <laughs> Uh, but uh, yeah, the the long walk actually is just about you know a random guy, fourteen years old I think, fourteen years old, uh, Ray, his name is, and just walking you know uh, with other young guys to win a prize, and they just have to walk. But if they walk s too slow, they're they just have one warning, and then another one, and then a third one. And then they're shot. So it's just this long walk with people talking, just like talking, and you have some flashbacks, obviously. But uh, and uh, that's this book is fascinating. I think it's just you know horror in the deep sense of the world, yes. but uh, of the world. But it's uh, um, really long to take place. You know, really, really a um, a long setup. I would say you know to go into the deepest. Uh, horror you know stuff no I, i agree and and it's a really interesting example of something to our point earlier you could very easily stage that theatrically in in a very oh, yeah. in a very small theater because you just have those people on stage and, and and it would just be it it would be really really awesome yeah yeah and yeah that would be impressive yeah and and you wouldn't need yeah like 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 you wouldn't need almost anything in terms of scenery or props or all of the usual stuff. It just, it's, it, it's just people on, on a long march, really. I, yeah. I'm, I massively prefer the sound of the French title, by the way. I, I wonder if, <laughs> would it be Perish? Would Perish be a bit No, of... Perish is kind of gentle, Perish, okay. no? <laughs> uh, crève, I don't know how you could translate that. I'm going to shake it. Uh, yet, I think it would be like, ah, oh, Crève, I don't know. I'm trying to find a translation, but it's not easy. No, no, oh good. It's, it's a very harsh way to say yeah. die. You know, it's like if you saying if you say to people just die, you, I want you to die. It's a, a you know a harsh word um, to say die. Nice, no, and and and, and I agree. I mean, the long walk, the the title in English sounds so innocent and almost boring that I think people skip over it <laughs> in, in the thing. And, um, yeah, was it the same for you for? For me, it was um, all through the 80s and 90s. It was it was the book covers. Oh, yeah. you would go to the bookstore and there'd be the Stephen King rack, you know, and there's all those terrifying yeah. covers and the yeah. Yeah, I don't know um, because that was a French uh, edition, obviously. But uh, my mother bought. Uh, she was a huge fan of Stephen King, and she bought a book. You know, um, it number two. Nice. Uh, <laughs> And uh, we were in a small uh, town, and it was a little, you know, little shop. 
and she bought the book and uh, <laughs> she just went uh, to you know to the cash machine to pay it for it and stuff and uh, I just saw the cover and I had nightmares for I don't know months maybe 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 years I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't know uh, it was you know just a picture of the the clown uh, it uh, and I think it was like a it's it's blurry because I tried to forget it uh, it's uh, some kind of a big uh, octopus if I remember well you know there was some kind of yeah awful things and uh, you had these two kids uh, trying to run away and one of the two kids were was trying to uh, help the other one uh, by grabbing his arm and the other arm was ripped off and it was like this horrible vision for a young uh, young people you know someone <laughs> so young and so innocent at the time <laughs> but uh yeah <laughs> was, yeah deeply traumatic vision oh good fun and <laughs> And it's really interesting to tie, like, like we're, we're talking a lot about um, essentially creative works that very much focus on the human and reflect us back. And almost the counterexample that I wanted to talk about, just um, if, if we're talking about formative experiences, there's a video game from 1986 called Starflight that um, I'll, I'll read the description because it's very... Um, yeah, I didn't know about this one. Yeah, it, it, was, it was a... Um, um, it was sort of famous in some circles and then completely forgotten in others, but it's a video game about, <laughs> about space exploration, combat, and trading. And it's set in the year 4620. The game puts players in the role of a starship captain sent out to explore the galaxy. And there's no set path. You switch freely between mining on the surface of, of the planets, between ship-to-ship -ship combat, and then some alien diplomacy. And over time, as you journey around the galaxy, a, a broader plot emerges. And so Starflight was, um, by the way, when you play it, it's extraordinarily rough, even by the standards of the time. The, the graphics are um, low-res EGA, which just means that it's a bunch of little blocky pixels, and you kind of have to go, that's your spaceship, that blocky pixel is your spaceship, and that blocky pixel is the planet, and you can sort of see it. Uh. But the reverse of what we're talking about, but there's a reason that it affected me quite a lot, which was I, I, I didn't play it in 1986. I must have played it around about 1991. And it's obviously basically Star Trek. You, you are a little guy. You assemble a crew of aliens and you journey around the galaxy. And there's very little character or dialogue or really interaction. Most of what you're doing is you are journeying across the surface of planets, searching for minerals. And then every once in a while you get a clue and then you follow that clue and you upgrade your spaceship and you go off to a new part of the galaxy. So I, I think the type of thing that appeals very strongly to a 12-year-old boy who doesn't know much about life. And it's, it's a famous game, I think, in that regard. It was, it was sort of um, a lot of 12-year-old boys wanted a game about Star Trek and they kind of made a game about Star Trek without any of the character or themes of Star Trek, just like space, nice, big, empty, nothing. Yeah. Ah, sorry, Sarah, are you still there? Oh, I lost you. Oh, okay. I lost you for a second. Oh, you good? Yeah. Yes, sorry, no worries. <laughs> yeah, so Starflight being this, this very, very science and space oriented game with almost no human contact or emotion involved um, and a, a genuinely wonderful game. I, I have really fond memories of it. But the thing that I remember most strongly about it 
So Starflight puts you in this galaxy, and at the time it's a very big galaxy. There's about 250 star systems to go and explore on your ship, and that's that's super exciting. Um, it's really cool. And the original game came with a map, and the and the map was of the galaxy, and it basically showed you all of all of these wonderful mysterious places that you would go in this game, and that 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 sounds great. And the main thing is that I had a friend, and this is the friend that I got Starflight off, and what he had done is he and his dad, his father, had taken the map and they'd put it up on the wall in his father's study. And they had a little journal. And the father and the son were playing Starflight together. And so every time they played, they would decide to go to a star system and they would note down the coordinates in the logbook very carefully. And then they would fly off together and they would explore on the planet and find the clues and really do the alien diplomacy and that sort of stuff. And then at the end of each play session, they would do a little mark on the map saying, okay, we visited there. And they and then they'd add the entry to the logbook. And yeah. I, I, I think looking back that the relationship between father and son was, was probably challenging and they probably didn't have a lot to, to really, um, to really talk about, but in some way this this quite emotionally empty game becomes a way for a dad and his kid mm. to go journeying somewhere and to have adventures together and to really connect and i always thought that was really amazing where the makers of starflight obviously didn't have to mm. directly put that into the game but they created a, a space a play space for that type of connection and i remember being quite affected by that because at the time i mean I did not have anyone to play games with. Games when I was growing up were a thing you did by yourself, very much so. And so, yeah, like like completely different. Not not stuffing something full of awesome humanity in the way that Stephen King or Oscar Wilde do, but giving people a space. And 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 that was that was really fun. Yeah, yeah. that's great characters that you're telling about. You know, the father and the son are having this map, but not yeah, talking too much. <laughs> I can see them. Yeah, yeah, yeah it, it would. And and it's, it just seemed and and so over time, like like I would go over there every few months, and the map was filling up. They had they had been to a lot of these little star systems, and um, the the actual plot of stuff, like near the end, there's there's actually a a really neat kind of sci-fi plot twist that that is mm -hmm. is pretty cool. But I'm pretty sure I remember when they got to that, and it was a big thing. Father and son got to experience the story and make yeah. the story together, and and I think that's. It, it certainly, even even back in, in the 80s and early 90s, it certainly points to where games are going now. This this idea of a metaverse where people connect through shared experiences. True. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's good fun. Um, and speaking of which, especially as, as, as you sail forward on your obviously brilliant <laughs> career, um, what do you want to do, Sarah? What, what do you have things that you want to make or achieve or things you want to make other people feel? Where is all this going? <laughs> Just for another easy that's question. A, yeah, thank you very much for this one. Um, <laughs> oh, that's a tough question also, yeah. Um, what I want to do is pretty simple. I've always wanted to be just to be, you know, um, clear. I, I wanted to be a writer, but a novel, novelist, you know. The only nice. goal was this one. <laughs> Um, it's still my goal, you know, on the long term. I don't have as much time as I want to to just write novels. Uh, so I read just short novels, um, but um, I don't have the time, you know, just to focus on a, on a book, an entire book. Uh, but I will someday, I'm sure of that. That's my main goal. 
um, I just want to, you know, my goal in life is just to craft stories. Just, you know, because I, that's the only thing I can do, <laughs> to be honest. I'm just uh, good at this thing and uh, I love to do that and I couldn't do anything else. But I'm sure you know the feeling, so <laughs> I'm sure you know what I mean. Um, but... Um, Oh, there's that very famous thing, right? There's a very famous thing that basically being a writer is what you do when you have realized <laughs> that you can't do anything else. You've completely failed at everything yeah. else. Writing is life. I didn't That's try what anything yeah. else, actually. When you said, how would you like to be uh, presented? I said, uh, you know, I would have liked to be presented as a, an astronaut, but I, I failed. So yeah, I would have been maybe, you know, exploring the space. That would have been great. But I'm, you know, not the mathematician and, you know, math are not my thing. So couldn't do that <laughs> but um yeah actually i just enjoy the journey you know i think it's uh it's so difficult to picture your life in like one month one year i just don't like to do that and i'm much more a past person i you know i, I use what i knew in the past and uh, um i'm not a future i'm not in the future at all so i'm just grabbing the opportunities as they come and as much as you know i'm still having fun and still experiencing stories in different ways and just meeting some people i love that in my different jobs you know just being a writer in different media just allows me to meet some very different people uh and it's great i love doing that also i love as as you understood i i love uh working with comedians so that's kind of my main goal also you know, you're going to laugh at this, but uh, I'm going to say it. Uh, <laughs> I have one goal, actually, which is uh, I'm just writing. You know, sometimes you write and you just don't know for who you're going to write, for whom. Uh, am I going to be read? Am I going to be read, actually? <laughs> am I going to be read? Um, do people uh, love or just like what I'm writing or not? So... Is it worth it? Is it just for me? Um, you know, this, this kind of silly questions. Um, I had one goal at one point, and I still have this goal, which is when I'm writing movies, you know, like short movies or maybe um, long movies that I would like to do one day. And it's just like, just write like if you're writing for Sam Rockwell, which <laughs> he's one of my favorite actors. Nice. So that's kind of my goal, you know. <laughs> you're writing and maybe one day he's going to see your work and maybe you're going to, you know, write for him. So that's a silly goal, but that's a goal for me. <laughs> I, that's awesome. You know, I just... It's a, it's a wonderful <laughs> way to frame it. <laughs> I just stick to it. And, you know, sometimes it just feels silly, but I do it. And, uh, yeah, it's my motivation, my self-motivation. Yeah, when I nice. need it. But most of the time, don't need motivation. Let's just do it. It's I'm I'm just thinking of the thing of, I think so many writers have have had their kind of ideal reader at some point, and sometimes it's either a child or a friend mm. or a, a a spouse or partner. I love that yours <laughs> is Sam Rockwell. You're like, I could write for this person that I know, or I could write for <laughs> Sam Rockwell. I choose Sam Rockwell. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> I hope someday it would be true, but I, you know, <laughs> never know. That's excellent. It's, it sounds like an excellent long-term arc of motivation <laughs> as well. This is a wonderful yeah. thing to go for. Um, you say that you're 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 more. Um, I think I think in the past, may maybe reflective, not not necessarily um, looking forward that much. In in that sense, um, 
what's the change been like then from novels to games or novels to theater to games? I, I, I imagine, but I don't know, obviously, that when you were younger, you didn't necessarily think of being a narrative yeah. designer as such. I didn't even know what it was, and yeah. I still don't know, actually. <laughs> yeah. It didn't yeah. really exist, right? Like, there was just words yeah, and games. And, uh, and, yeah, and the difference between writers and narrative designers is, you know, really thin. And, you know, there is, you know, uh, depending on studios and people, it's just not the same work, actually. So... Yeah. Uh, I, I picture narrative design much more like, you know, a writer specialized in game design and, you know, someone who can write but also understand game design and uh, or a game yeah. designer that really knows about stories and how to tell stories. So it's kind of uh, in the middle, you know. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. There, there, I can't picture a bridge between uh, literature, uh, movies and um, games for me was like a natural, you know, uh, the natural force of things. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but, it's, you know, to evolve from one to another. Um, I didn't... Um, I'm still in movies and I'm still in theater and I'm still in literature um, as much as I am into games now. And someday I will be, I don't know, in audio, maybe audio books. I don't know. Um, I just want to experience things. And it's just, to me, it's just like, it's nice. just stories. You know, and uh, the media is not the issue, actually. It's not even the point. Oh, of course, you have to take that into account when you're writing. You have to know if you're writing for a game, you're not going to write the same way you do when you write a novel, obviously. But um, it's just stories at the end, and you just have to make people feel something. And uh, nice. I like to make people feel sad. I think I'm, I'm good to make people feel sad. <laughs> Um, but also I love, I love, actually, I love to make people laugh because, um, you know, some, someday, uh, people told me that, um, uh, I wasn't good to write comedy, but I had never written anything, a comic. So, um, it was kind of hurtful because I, I took it like, you know, a, uh, uh, a step to do forward, just writing comedy to know if I can do that or not. And, uh, actually I... I managed to do so because I wrote two theater comedies. They were also dramas, but, you know, a lot of comedy and people would laugh a lot. Yep. So it was like, you know, my big revenge of, on life. And I, I thought, OK, I can write drama. I can, I can write comedy also. That was great. Um, I love to make people laugh, but I also love to make people you know, feel. Um, I love to, to make people reflect about their life also because I do that all the time. So. Let's do that on others, <laughs> you know. Uh, <laughs> uh, how do you feel about what you did and what you lost? And, uh, you know, a lot about nostalgia. That's kind of one of my main subjects. And um, how time's, uh, times flows, you know, that's kind of my main subject. And I don't even see it now. Just, you know, I read some stuff I wrote like two months ago and I, I said to myself, okay, that's also about time, but I didn't even know it before running it again. You know, that's kind of uh, weird. But uh, yeah, time is a big subject for me and uh, nostalgia, yeah. Nice. And, and I guess, I mean, I think it's always been true that most of the best comedy has come from very, um, very human places of pain yeah. and experience and and so all you really do is sort of flip the switch slightly right yeah. and yeah and go, 
going the other way, I, it's it's certainly been my experience that um, a, a, lo- a lot of comedians are wonderful at dark drama in terms of acting. And it's not always true yeah. in the reverse. Some some straight actors can't really do comedy, but almost all good comedians, if you get it out of them, they can really go to dark yeah. places on, on stage yeah, or on true. film. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> do you feel like time is accelerating? Yeah, as we grow older. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, <laughs> very much. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a tragedy. Yeah. Do you feel as a... But you know, it's, time is related. It's almost... As uh, Einstein would say, do you say it in English? In English, like that, time is relative. Yeah. Yep. That's yep, really relative. true. Yeah. <laughs> when you're a child, you know, you think like the world is going to be here for a very long time, and you're going to be here forever. Yes. But you're not. <laughs> and uh, when you grow older, you know, just last year sounds like last month, you know, or last week, and. Uh, yeah, and you you know when you're I don't know if your grandparents used to say that to you or maybe your parents, but uh, when they say uh, you know it goes fast, you know time goes fast and uh, time flies, you know, uh, you yeah you kind of experience that when you grow older. I feel that now, you know, I'm just thirty three now, and I have an issue with my age this time. Thirty three, yeah, I think it's, it's thirty three. Uh, but yeah, I experienced that um, growing older. Do you think so? Do you think time it's interesting. goes faster? Yeah. Yes, I I think in in the obvious external way where um, actual events in the world around us are accelerating at an incredible rate, largely driven yeah. by technology. But for me, so so there was there was a a, a boundary that I crossed somewhere around my early thirties. And others had warned me about this. And it's the old thing of up to a certain point, you just kind of use yeah. time. You, you, you just kind of, it's time is infinite and you just do whatever you want. And then there's a real boundary. And beyond that, time is a limited resource that you spend. And this is a, this is a real change that I found in myself. And, um, it's it's not that I wake up every morning thinking about the moment of my death, but um, thinking of I have a certain amount of energy, a certain amount of time. Where am I going to put that? And I never used to think about that. Yeah. I was just sailing along, happily doing stuff, and what comes next. And what had happened for me was, in a, in a weird way, I think, at the same time as that happens, for me at least, um, I started focusing very tightly on each day because I realized that, you know, there's whatever, hopefully several thousand of them left. And really what I wanted to do was get much better at each day. Um, so we've, on the one hand, we've got several, this, this long march of several thousand things to come. But really all we're going to do is wake up every morning, do stuff and go to bed. And I really started going, okay, so what's a good day for me? What are the basic patterns that make a, a day be in some way satisfying? I should really start to get better at that. And yes, so in, in, in one sense, all around us, obviously technology is charging forward. Last year felt like 10 years, all, all that stuff going on. But, it, but the other side of it for me is that the basic unit of time has become a day. And I want to get much better at how I spend yeah. each day. 
that's great. That's a great way to see the world in time. <laughs> I wish I could do that. I can't do that. But one day, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's fascinating because um, um, certainly when I was much younger, I did have vast mm. plans. I did have things. And I still have plans, but I'm much more comfortable with the idea of I'll just try and spend time wisely as mm. it comes to me. So it's almost like this boundary condition. And I think of it sometimes where like the 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 big complaint of science fiction writers recently has been that it's almost impossible to write near future science fiction, science mm. fiction set five years from now. Because by the time yeah. you finish writing it, completely overcome. You can't usefully predict this stuff. That's just ridiculous. You can still talk about spaceships in the year 3000 but you can't usefully talk about 2023 yeah. i think william gibson had this problem where the thing that william gibson who obviously wrote neuromancer what, what what he started doing is he started cheating he started setting all of his science fiction books slightly in the past just to get yeah. out of that problem <laughs> but this thing of this is, so among this kind of vast rushing flow of time accelerating all around us um I do find it useful for me. It's been very useful just to sit back and go, okay, what what's the necessary conditions for me to get up in the morning and feel like I'm having a good day? And that's the way that I've managed it. I've, I haven't abandoned all plans, but I've certainly gotten much less kind of focused on the three-year, the five-year, the 10-year strategy type thing, at least for me. Yeah, but. I get that. That's great. I'm going to take your philosophy and try to make it mine. <laughs> But I'm uh, not sure it's going to work. <laughs> no, I was going to say, I was going to say, we seem like, in the most wonderful way, very different people, which, which, yeah. is, which is excellent. It's going to be fun. Um, one thing about the process, and, and this is certainly something that many people I know have, have gone through, one of the joys of focusing on a novel is that you are in control of the entire universe. What's it, what's it like evolving from that towards more and more collaborative disciplines, um, especially theater, especially games? Does some little part of you die when you can't control the entire world? Uh, it sounds like a sci-fi novel, actually, what you're saying. That. Um, um, I wouldn't say some of, uh, some of my... Um, authorship would die you know it's not like the way i said but uh, you know it's um in theater for at least for uh, from my experiences in theater uh it, it, it was the text you know what i i had written and the comedians and so there were just you know two entities and we're just walking um towards the um, the achievement which is the stage and what we're gonna show the public so the only moments in theater where i found like I had lost some part of myself would be the moment where uh, the actor would go on stage and, you know, he could do or she could do whatever th they want, you know, you're not in control anymore, you, they're not puppets, so, <laughs> and that's absolutely terrifying, yeah. that's horrible, <laughs> but that's also the great thing about theatre, you know, that moment where people just reacting in the in the crowd, just reacting, the public reacting to what you wrote and the way the actor just transcend it you know it's a it's a beautiful thing to to experience i love that and i want to go back to theater soon because that's great um 
of course, when you talk about big worlds like the ones from Ubisoft or um, big studios or even smaller stu studios with um, some people writing with you or just doing the, the artworks or just uh, doing the game design and stuff, it can be difficult, yeah, sometimes. It depends on the people you're working with. Um, but, um, you know, as you said, it's great also to try to understand someone else's uh, vision and creative um, process and try to, you know, get along with this person and make something together. That's also a great feeling that I really, really like, but it's pretty rare, I would say, you know, of finding these kind of people. I found one or two people like that in my life, I would say. People, you know, I would gladly work again with because that's just, you know, natural in a way. We're different, but you, you know, we understand each other and we know how, where to get and where to go um, to achieve something. And uh, yeah, it's pretty rare, actually. So it can be difficult and it can be challenging, but it's also, you know, from mistakes and uh, wanderings that you learn and that you, you are better uh, story crafter. I would say, just after. So I love this kind of experiences also. But, you know, sometimes, like you said, I like to be just with my own story, with my own way of talking about things. And, uh, yeah, just me and the paper. That's a wonderful nice. feeling. And uh, couldn't, you know, couldn't leave that. Yeah. Nice. And and I think you said before when when we were starting to talk that, you, you have a sense that you will return to that mm. at some point. At, at some point in the, in the future, Sarah has her space in her cave with, yeah. with her novel. And, and this is wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I would love to have, a, you know, a little cottage in Scotland. <laughs> I love Scotland. Um, with just, you know, a little cabin where I could write my stuff and, you know, be, be the old weird lady people are afraid of, you know. <laughs> would love that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the famous cottage in Scotland with the strange writer. That, that's that's the perfect note for us to finish on. What a, what a wonderful image. Um, thank, thank you, you so much, Sarah. I really great. appreciate your time. Um, now, where can people find you, find out about you? What would you like to point people um, towards? Maybe the easiest way would be my website, I think. So I don't know if you want me to say it or <laughs> if you're going to write somewhere. Yeah, yes. Um, um, if you say it and okay. it'll be in the show Okay, so notes that's as well. perfect. Yeah, yeah, I trust you. <laughs> yeah, it would be the better way. So, or nice. on LinkedIn, maybe. But yeah. Nice. And and obviously, congratulations again on on the new job at Ubisoft. And I'm sure that a very, very good game, which you will be working on, which I have played a great deal of already and, and, and love. Me and my great. partner both love it. I'm sure it's going to get even better as, as the future goes on. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll finish there. One second. Thank you. Thank you very that was much, great. Sarah. <laughs> Tempest Bay wouldn't be possible without the amazing support of everyone involved, including you. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and consider leaving a review. This helps us out a lot. For more, please go to projecttempest.net for access to the videos, art, podcast, award-winning stories, and much more. That's projecttempest.net. See you next time in Tempest Bay. Mm -hmm.